Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Pimper, host of the Public Policy Channel. And today I'm pleased to welcome Christina C. Miller, author of Poor Representation, Congress and the Politics of Poverty in the United States from Cambridge University Press. Chris, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, So before we dive in and talk about the book itself, I wonder if you might tell our listeners a little bit uh, about who you are, pardon me, and what it is that brought you to this particular project. Absolutely. Um, So I'm currently an associate professor at the University of Maryland. Uh, Prior to that, uh, in political science, I should say, uh, prior to that, I was at the University of Illinois um, and uh, got my degrees at University of Michigan um, and the College of William and Mary. And all straight in political science, I've always been um, really interested in congressional representation and legislative behavior. So I guess kind of what brought me around to all of this is just a broad interest in understanding why members of Congress act the way that they do, um, and specifically about how they represent the people that they are supposed to be representing. Um, So I think a lot about who is and who isn't represented, um, and that tends to be what motivates my my work. Um, So I came to this project Uh, in a couple of ways, I suppose. The first is that I had written a book prior to this that looked at constituency representation more generally and kind of who members see in their district. And one of the things that came out of that is that it was obvious just how many constituents aren't being seen by their members, even legislators with good intentions, legislators from both parties. um, They're really not representing everybody. So that was already where my mind was at. And then furthermore, it's not particularly random. So as I think about poverty as being a major social and political uh, problem, and as a country, we're not making progress on it in the way that we might. Um, And in recent years, it seems to me anyway, that poverty is often invoked um, as a rhetorical device to convey compassion, to convey empathy um, by politicians, But yet, when you look at the legislative process and the legislative outcomes, we don't see as much happening there as you might suspect, given the rhetoric. So I was really interested, um, I guess, from both kind of a more academic place based on my other research, and then just from being a citizen of the world or of the United States, I suppose, and really concentrating here on the representation of the poor. So why don't we jump in there? Because there is this this conventional wisdom that suggests that, uh, and I think this comes from political scientists, it comes from policy people, it comes from social welfare scholars, it comes from activists, this notion that uh, poor people are simply ignored in national politics. And that was one of the uh, the, the the sort of the foundational kinds of claims that you first examined. Tell us a little bit about uh, uh, about how you sought to, to make sense of that claim and what it is that you found. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there is um, kind of at two levels. There is this sense that the poor is not uh, as visible, not as much seen. Part of that, I think, is if we just look at the way that we commonly talk about class and poverty to the extent that we do, we tend to focus on the rich part of the equation, right? So we talk a lot about, well, this is the 1% versus the 99% or this is the super rich. 
sometimes we talk about inequality and we don't really talk that much about the poor. Um, and I, as you point out, I think that's absolutely true for kind of scholars and think tank people and activists often in the media. Um, so I do feel like this is an omitted piece of the puzzle. And as we've over the last, I don't know, several years, and I've had more dialogue about class issues, this still seems like the part of it that's not as much addressed. Um, and I think it goes back to this notion of the poor being invisible um, that dates back at least to the 1960s. Um, and I think that that idea is really important because if the poor are politically uh, invisible, then it's possible to talk about elected officials not ask, acting for them as being kind of a benign oversight. Well, yeah, they don't act for them, but that's just because they don't see them. And the kind of corollary to that, I think, is, well, if, if we just point them out, then, of course, we'll do things to help the poor. And so there's both kind of a, an excuse element to it, but also it suggests a certain solution. Um, and so my take was that I, I thought there might be more to it than that. Um, and I don't think it's that they're invisible to politicians. I think politicians are choosing to act on other issues besides poverty. Um, and so what I did to kind of get at this and see if my hunch was right is I went and looked at um, all the State of the Union addresses since uh, John F. Kennedy's first address, all the way through the last address by uh, President Obama. And I did kind of a text analysis. So I looked for mentions of the poor or synonyms like poor Americans, poverty, um, things of that nature, and just tried to get a sense of, are they being mentioned in the State of the Union? And I chose the State of the Union because it is kind of the president's biggest speech. And for my purposes, it's also given directly to members of Congress who are all sitting there. We've watched them, you know. Um, and so if my take on this is that if the president is mentioning the poor, to an audience of members of Congress in a speech where that is widely believed to be kind of um, a spotlight that he can shine on certain issues, then it would be really hard to make the case that they don't see the poor or they're just not aware of it. Um, and what I find is that the poor are frequently mentioned and they're mentioned almost at the same rate by Republicans and Democrats. Um, they're mentioned by upwards of 80% of State of the Union addresses. Um, and this was really striking to me. So then I started to poke around and see, well, you know, how is this compared to other groups? And I find that they're mentioned more than twice as often, um, usually as, as the middle class with some variation, but they're considerably uh, more frequently mentioned than the middle class, also mentioned more than the rich. Um, but then I also looked at some non-economic groups, groups that we think presidents might invoke as being widely popular groups like uh, veterans or seniors or farmers. Um, and again, the poor are mentioned more frequently in State of the Union addresses in this whole, you know, period of decades than those groups. Um, and so that, that really kind of started to dispel this. And then I did a parallel analysis, um, looking at the party platforms for both the Democratic Party and the Republican Party, again, in the same window from 1960, um, up to 2012. And I find very similar patterns here that the parties are also invoking the poor and poverty issues in their platforms. And so to the extent that elected officials and members of Congress are members of their party, are party elites, 
and play a role in that, it's hard to say that if it's being mentioned in the party platform, that somehow the elected partisan officials affiliated with those parties um, are unaware of the poor. So this really, to me, shook up this notion that the reason we don't see more activity on poverty in Congress is just because members don't realize it's a thing. So, so, so that, that sort of knocks down one of the, the, I think, dominant explanations for why we might understand, right? If the political system is not responsive to, to, to poor, poor and low-income people, then, then, then we can't see them. If that knocks that down, there's one other explanation, and that is that, well, maybe they see them, but they don't need to be responsive because they vote at radically lower rates than other population groups so that there is something rational about the national political system ignoring them, right? So what do you make of that claim? Yeah, absolutely. And this is probably the one that that popped up the most in early stages when I was talking about this project with colleagues or people outside of political science and people would always say, yeah, yeah, but of course that makes sense. And um, besides from just bugging me, um, it also struck me that it doesn't really make sense. Um, And so I, as you say, kind of look at this misconception or myth, um, and I kind of have three reasons I, or or three ways that I knock it down, I think. Um, The first is that the poor do vote at lower turnout rates, but it's not dramatically lower. Um, Over the last 15 years, uh, statistics have shown that they vote about 12 percentage points lower than than others, than the next income group. So yeah, it's lower, but it's not like the poor are not voting in American politics. And that uh, gap is pretty consistent in presidential and midterm years, which are relevant here as I think about members of the House. Um, and some other scholars who've been looking at class, like Larry Bartels and Marty Gillins, um, and other folks have also pointed out that the gap that, that those scholars find in their measures of representation and responsiveness um, are way larger than the gaps in voting. And so there's a sense that this might be a little bit of the story, but it doesn't explain everything. Um, so my take is that, yes, the, vo- the, the poor do vote at a, a lower rate, but they're still voting. And particularly if we're thinking about congressional elections and not national elections, there are House districts where upwards of a third of the population lives in poverty. So you really can't, I mean, yes, it's a lower rate, but it's a lot of individuals in your district. Um, And so maybe at the national level, you could fudge it a little bit differently. But when we're talking about house districts, that gets tougher. Um, The other part of it is that we have this notion that legislators are super sensitive to re-election. They're always, as we call it, running scared. Um, so even when it seems irrational, they're freaked out about being voted out of office. So if that's all true, that stereotype of, of elected officials, which really is very common in the way that scholars think about what motivates legislators' behavior, if they're so nervous about being voted out, then they should be responsive to the poor, even at a lower turnout rate. And they so even yeah. Go sorry, ahead. go ahead. No, I was just going to say, say so even if we've got so 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 we poor people are are not only visible but they're more visible than groups like veterans and yeah. seniors and other more favorable groups. 
that you've demonstrated that they voted lower rates, but there are more than enough of them to make it rational to pursue those votes. So presumably when you turn to examining what the political system is doing, you find it wildly responsive to the needs of poor people. Yes, (laughs) exactly. Exactly. You've summarized my entire research. We are done. (laughs) That really would be an exciting, surprising finding, wouldn't it? Yeah. And you know, the thing is that I I honestly expected to find that there would be representation in the places where you have more poor people. Um, that I went into the project thinking that even if the aggregate numbers don't look great, that the that we would expect to find representation by members of Congress who represent the most uh, the most poor people, the poorest districts, however you want to think about it. Um, so it wasn't. Um, completely off that I, I thought we would find some positive relationships here. And, you know, to give away the, the punchline, I find very few of those positive relationships. Um, so why don't we start with, and you, and you sort of, you look across a number of different dimensions in order to try to tease apart, you know, how we might identify responsiveness and, and how it might vary from member to member and district to district. Let's just sort of start looking at, at overall legislation that could be understood to be specifically helpful to poor people. So how much how much activity is going on in Congress with that population in mind? Yeah, so the, the very short answer is not much at all. Um, and as you said, I just to kind of that there at the beginning, because this will then apply to the different ways that I think about representation. I am looking at um, this data that look that codes every single bill introduced into Congress by its content. And there's about 220 subtopics that it gets coded as. It's called the Policy Agendas Project. Um, and so what I look at is not just social welfare that we might stereotypically think of, but also things like um, economic tax-based programs, unemployment, uh, housing subsidies, education that targets low-income children, employment training, food assistance. So, um, and it's not all government programs. Sometimes it's about tax incentives for businesses to locate in poor communities and so forth. So I try to really capture a wide range of things that could affect poor people. And overall, what I find is that Congress is not doing much. Um, The overall levels of activity are really low. Only about 1.2% of all laws passed by Congress going back to the 1960s uh, through 2014 are on any of those poverty-related topics. Um, It gets a little bit better. You know, it is hard to pass legislation. So I kind of move stages earlier in the legislative process and I look at, well, okay, so maybe things aren't being passed into law, but let's look at what Congress is addressing. So I look at congressional hearings with the idea that, you know, sometimes it's hard to to come to resolution, but what are they talking about? Um, And here the numbers are a little bit better, but it's still only about two and a half uh, or a little bit more than that percent of congressional hearings. Uh, look at poverty issues. Then I relax it even more. I say, okay, well, maybe it's hard to, you know, hold the hearing. So just what what bills are being introduced? What's even on the table on the congressional agenda? And it creeps up a little bit, but it's still below 3% of all bill introductions um, have to do with poverty issues. So it's really a low number. Um, there is some variation year to year in terms of the raw number of bills, but not in terms of the percentages. Um, 
so then I think about, well, maybe these fluctuations might still reveal responsiveness um, to variations in the level of poverty. So I'm thinking here about maybe when there is uh, more poor people, uh, Congress does a little bit more. So the overall levels might not be very high, but it would still show some relationship. Um, and so I look at the levels of poverty in the United States over time, and I find no relationship. So when there's more poor people, not at all. Congress is not doing more. No. And I look at this in the same year. I lag it for a year. I lag it for two years, hoping to shake you know, some correlation here. And I, I really don't. Um, and so that was really striking because that kind of would have made sense. And, and more generally, congressional scholars have this notion that there is this level of macro or collective responsiveness and that, you know, Congress does kind of move in tandem with public opinion um, when we think about kind of an ideological space or attitudes towards government spending. So we have a literature about this notion of macro responsiveness. And I thought, well, maybe maybe I can be fit into part of that. Um, but the evidence just wasn't there. Um, and, and then I looked at still trying to find a positive, so the eternal hopeful attitude here. Um, maybe it has to do with not the overall national levels, but maybe it has to do with the kind of political geography. So maybe as poverty is spread out more into more districts, that might make a difference. Um, and, you know, that, again, intuitively seemed like it, it could make sense. Um, so if you have 15 percent as our national poverty level, it matters if that's 15% in all 435 districts or if some districts have 5% and some have 20%. So that's kind of the, the notion I was trying to get at there. Um, and again, I find that although the distribution of poverty has changed over the last 30 plus years, um, it really does not explain the changes in legislative activity to the extent that there are some. So I was kind of left with a sense that the collective representation that Congress provides the poor um, seems unrelated to actual levels of poverty in the United States, um, which is not what we want for a representative institution. Now, that that said, right, that there are, in fact, members of the House who care about poverty and who at least are are among those making those efforts to get those bills introduced, heard in committee, and enacted into law. What can you what what should we know about who those people are? Absolutely, and and I like that you're keeping us on the positive track here because the the fact that the overall levels are low. There are still in some years hundreds of bills, sometimes only dozens, but nevertheless there are people doing something about poverty in Congress. And so I then kind of moved to thinking about those relationships, what we call dyadic, but really just about that relationship between the individual member and their district. Um, and I think that's most often what we're really thinking about when we talk about congressional elections or congressional responsiveness um, is that kind of electoral connection between a member and their district. And so my expectation here is, like I, I mentioned earlier, is that members who represent more poor people in their district should do more on poverty issues. Um, doesn't have to become law, just do more. So sponsor more legislation in particular is one of the measures I look at. Um, as well as kind of vote in a way that is more supportive of, of poverty, anti-poverty legislation. And generally, we think that this is how members of Congress work, right? If you have more farmers in your district, 
you do more on agricultural issues. And so I was just looking for a parallel here. Um, and so what I, I do is I look at all House members that served in Congress um, from the 98th Congress, which is 1983 to 1984, all the way through the 114th, uh, which is 2013 to 2014. So I have nearly 7,000 observations of legislators over this period of time. And I ask, you know, does the legislator sponsor any poverty legislation in a given Congress in a given year? Um, and then I look at how many bills and I have a couple different measures, but the most basic one is just, do they sponsor a poverty bill? Um, and the result is not really. Um, most legislators really don't. And that's uh, striking. Um, so the first cut, just looking at the variables themselves, how much poverty do you have in your district and do you sponsor at least one bill? Um, 77% of legislators are completely inactive on poverty issues in any given year. That's a really big number. Um, so 16% of them introduce a single bill in any given year. And that leaves only about 7% of uh, House members in a given year that sponsor just two bills. And these are just sponsor a bill. It doesn't have to go anywhere. It could be totally symbolic. In fact, it could even you know, not be a, a massive bill. It could be a fairly small program, like a pilot program that you're proposing or something like that. So it's a, a pretty reasonable threshold, I think, for giving some indication that you're paying attention to poverty issues. Um, and it appears to be unrelated to the level of poverty in the district. And that ranges from 2% to about 35% or more in some house districts. So then again, I want to take it the next step. Uh, so I look at it uh, more systematically with a whole bunch of other considerations in there. You know, the party of the legislator, um, their seniority in the system, uh, their own identity, so our, their race, their ethnicity, their gender, um, and also their economic environment. So median income in the district, national political, uh, national economic conditions, um, and things of that sort. And again, uh, what I find is that there's no evidence that relates this to uh, district poverty. So Put differently, knowing the degree of poverty in a congressional district does not reliably predict which legislators take steps to represent the interests of the poor and which do not. So a legislator with a district that has 5% poverty and a legislator from a district with 20% poverty are equally likely to um, sponsor poverty-related legislation. Um, and that's really striking because that means that there are a lot of legislators who represent a lot of poor people who are not particularly active on poverty legislation. Some of them don't sponsor any poverty legislation. Um, and so this really runs against what we expect in terms of thinking about how members of Congress represent the people in their district, that there should be a positive relationship. The more you represent of some type of person, the more you do for them. And we don't see that here. The flip side of it is that there are also some members who don't represent very many poor people, but are doing something. So it's an opportunity to see this in the, the glass is half full or the glass is half empty way. And I think they're actually both um, appropriate in this situation. It is problematic to me um, as somebody who cares about congressional representation that we don't find a positive relationship between the number of poor in a district and what their elected representative does on poverty issues.
But it also is good news to find that there are people doing things, even if it's unrelated to who lives in their district. Um, and I mean, it's, it's, kind of then steers me. There's almost an inverse correlation in some of those places, right? I mean, if you looked at some of the the poorest places, those 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 may well be the places with representatives who don't count themselves among who you call the champions, right? Which, Absolutely. at some level, is not surprising, right? We know that poverty is higher in the South. And in the West than it is in the North, the South is disproportionately Republican. Republicans, all else equal, not likely to be identified with meaningful anti-poverty efforts. So at some level, there's, there's in that macro stage, there's nothing necessarily surprising about that. But it is when we think about what does it mean to represent your district, it really does highlight the, the utter unresponsiveness that is taking place to, to some population groups in some districts. Absolutely. And I I think you're right to point out that there are kind of geographic dimensions to this and a partisan dimension to it, um, particularly, as you said, in the South and in the West and really rural poverty um, is a type of poverty that, let me say that all poor people are underrepresented in Congress, but amongst the poor, the rural poor are especially underrepresented um, because of those dynamics that you just described. And it's worth pointing out that Um, You know, the metric here, again, like I said, you could be proposing a bill to take something like food stamps and return it to this, you know, to local administration or to grants to nonprofits in your community. This doesn't have to be about proposing major federal uh, government assistance programs. This, you know, a lot of the examples that I look at when you actually look at what these bills that are sponsored, what are they about? There are bills that are about uh, tax breaks to investment in um, housing and low-income housing, right? That's something that we might associate as more pro-business, maybe something that we expect a Republican member of Congress to be more supportive of. So I think the thing is that there are opportunities here, even for um, members that may not like traditional welfare policy, to still represent and to put on the table issues that affect their poor constituents. And there can be disagreement about what the right policy is. But what's so striking to me is that elected members, and especially elected members from poor districts, are not even talking about those issues. And so if it's not on the table, there's no way we're going to make progress on on poverty. So you've confirmed for us this uh, notion and other research that suggests that that poor people in the United States, at least legislatively, do not do not find their way onto the agenda too much and and find their way successfully on the agenda even less. You've knocked down two of the more common explanations for why that might be and and shown us that at least rhetorically, those national politicians are aware of poverty and poor people. And, you know, odds are really good that a state of the union is going to tick it off the box, if nothing else, um, and also shown that even political parties, Republicans and Democrats alike, are writing this into their platform. So, so that that lack of attention and the lack of voting aren't going to serve as explanation. So it feels like we're right back at the start here, right? So how do we exactly. make sense of this? What do you think is going on? So, yeah, so this brings us to the 
third type of representation that I look at, which is much less commonly studied. It's what we call surrogate representation. And basically, it just means that uh, legislators represent the interests of individuals who live outside of their district. Um, and so we often think about this um, as a complement to that kind of district-based representation. And we might be most familiar with it if, when we think about um, minorities or women in Congress, so that we think that a uh, female legislator uh, not only represents the women in her district and all constituents in her district, but maybe also women all over the country. That that last part of it is what surrogate representation is. And the, the challenge with it on one hand is that there's no electoral accountability. Um, you know, there's no connection there. Uh, but, you know, it still can provide representation for generally underrepresented groups. Um, and so that's really what I explore. And so I, I look at, again, all these members of the House, but I start looking at their careers as a whole and thinking about, well, who are these individuals that are doing stuff? Uh, who is sponsoring legislation for the poor? And so there's about 1,400 members of Congress during this period, and I, I look at their um, overall activity on poverty issues. And I come to define this particular group that I call the consistent champions. Um, and I define them basically as members that reliably take initiative on behalf of the poor. And so what this means is that they consistently sponsor two or more poverty bills on average over their career. So because there isn't this electoral accountability with surrogate representation, I wanted a measure that got at the sense that they really were reliably, you know, year in, year out, going to do something and give voice to the poor. Um, and using that metric, I identify 35 individuals uh, out of 1,400, so that do something, um, and that I call the champions uh, of the poor. Um, and they are more likely to be Democrats, they're more likely to be African American, and they're more likely to be women uh, than the membership as a whole. They're also more likely to come from urban or mostly urban districts. Um, and for most of them, their activity is, as champions is not related to district poverty. There are a few exceptions, but that's generally the case. Um, and as a whole, these 35 individuals or champions have an average of 11% poverty in their district, which is the exact same average as the full sample. So they're not unusual in that way. And I kind of divide them into these four groups that I'll just run through briefly because I think it kind of captures the different approaches we see to um, who is acting on behalf of the poor. The first are what I call these old school Democrats. Um, and they're mostly urban, mostly from the Northeast. They have pretty low poverty in their own districts. Uh, they tend to have been elected prior to 1990. And that's important because I think that's prior to a lot of the partisan polarization that we see today. And I think, therefore, that shaped their attitude towards the types of, of poverty solutions and the way to work with people and so forth um, in a way that might be different than more recent legislators. Um, they tend to focus on things like housing policy and food assistance. So kind of what we might think is traditional democratic priorities in terms of poverty policy. Um, and so that's kind of one category of these types of, of champions. Um, another would be democratic women. Uh, these women mostly come from urban and uh, mostly urban districts, as you pointed out, not from the South in general. Um, and what's really striking about this group of champions is that they tend to focus on gendered poverty issues. So we see here a real overlap between their role as 
female legislators and also as surrogates for the poor. So there's a place where women's issues or so-called women's issues and poverty issues overlap. And that's where we see most of their activity. So we're thinking here about um, sponsoring legislation that affects children, families, childcare, um, issues like if you're a single parent and you lose your job, what happens to your welfare benefits if you live in a state with work requirements, right? What time period is allowed for you to find new work? Um, also addressing issues like domestic and sexual violence, which disproportionately affect poor women. So if you lose your job or leave your job due to sexual discrimination or violence on the job, do you risk losing all your uh, benefits for you and possibly your children or your family? Um, so those types of issues. What's interesting here is that this group includes both um, white legislators and also African-American legislators. Um, for the non-African-American women legislators, they tend not to come from very poor districts. The African-American legislators here do represent poor districts. So um, that's an interesting distinction. Um, I think one good example that I, I call upon uh, of these women, these champions, would be uh, the late Patsy Mink of Hawaii, who was very active on poverty issues, also on, on women's issues. Um, her own district was not particularly poor, uh, but she she championed these types of bills and so forth during her rather lengthy career in the House. Um, real quickly, another group, perhaps more surprising, are what I call indigo Republicans. So these are Republicans from blue or purple states, um, and they're largely Northeastern, Midwestern, uh, largely urban, and they do not come from poor districts. And what's really striking is the perspective they bring in terms of the, the bills they sponsor. They tend to focus on things like the tax code, on the earned income tax credit, on reducing the role of federal government in favor of more state government involvement or nonprofit involvement. And they tend to have a much more business-oriented approach. So these are good examples of how who is active also affects how we approach poverty, that people, legislators, these champions bring different perspectives. Um, lastly, there's the urban black Democrats. Um, as I mentioned, uh, these members do come from more poor districts, uh, and they are both surrogates and district representatives. So it's a rather complex relationship they have here, um, but they tend to focus on education, jobs, housing, um, and, and things of that sort. Um, so a, a good example here might be um, the former House member, late House member, Representative Gus Hawkins from California, who is very active, especially on education and employment, uh, both for low-income um, families and children. And, and so you see kind of these distinctive perspectives amongst these champions. And I think that's both really important for the types of policies we consider, but also given how many people are not champions, it means there's a lot of perspectives that aren't currently on the table as well. So, so why don't we see more champions? Why don't we see more people paying attention to the issue and trying to enact law? Uh, Democrats or Republicans, for that matter. Yeah, um, <laughs> that is the million-dollar question. I mean, it is frustrating that there are not more people um, more legislators active and and even amongst those that are active you know they sponsor the legislation but truthfully their legislation does not get enacted um but the legislative process is heavily favors those in leadership uh those on the committees with jurisdiction and so some of these champions are really championing the poor by just 
putting their issues out there, even if there's not that end game success. So there's ways to improve on multiple dimensions. We'd like um, more activity on poverty issues, and then we'd like more of these proposals to to get a full shake through the process and and to see that happen. Um, I think some of that is going to be uh, one part of this is that there's not a lot of interest group activity for the poor, as other scholars have have pointed out. Um, and so that is a problem because oftentimes we think that, especially for groups that may not have a loud voice on their own, that somebody could be out there championing for them. And um, it's a whole nother set of work to talk about, um, uh, to, to think about why that is in the interest group universe. But it is the, the fact that there are not a lot of interest groups um, active on poverty issues. Uh, one thing I talk about is that obviously we could try to promote more of that, but also the ones that are there might um, think about who, how to focus their scarce resources and scarce energy, because sometimes the people who are active on poverty issues are not the usual suspects. You know, they aren't the ones from the poor districts. And so maybe there's a way to get a little bit more um, distance out of the, the interest group activity that is going on. And, and those organizations are working really hard and trying to get maybe a little bit more out of that. I think part of it is also a diversity situation. So one of the things that emerges from these different ways that I look at representation is that um, African-Americans, women, and to some extent also Latino legislators, which we didn't talk about uh, as much today, they're a more um, nuanced example, but there are um, patterns here and that these are the types of legislators that are more active on poverty. And so to the extent that uh, women and, and minorities are still underrepresented in Congress, um, you know, that those graphs are moving upwards. And so there's more minorities, more women in the House um, pretty consistently over the last few decades. So maybe as that increases, we'll also see an increase in attention to poverty issues, since those are the people that are most likely to engage the issues. Um, but as I mentioned, we'd also want to see this happening at the leadership level, not just the, the incoming freshmen, because they can sponsor bills, but it is far less likely that they are going to have legislative success. So we'd like to see, um, I think, from the perspective of, of poverty legislation, it would be um, useful uh, if, if this all holds, is that perhaps more women and more minorities in positions of leadership on committees and within the parties may also be part of, of the solution. Um, and then I think we've touched upon before, you know, it would be disingenuous to not recognize that there's a party difference here. Um, and that is not to say that the Democrats are, are flawless, certainly, um, but we do see that they are more likely statistically uh, Democratic legislators to sponsor poverty legislation. Um, and so that does um, raise questions about uh, why Republicans, specifically Republicans from poorer districts, uh, don't sponsor more legislation. And I think, you know, if we, we look at the last couple of years here and the current election cycle, there's a lot more populist rhetoric on both sides. It takes a different form, you know. So uh, the Democrats are going through their own soul searching about the role of the progressive wing versus the more mainstream wing, um, whether you think about that as Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton or some of the congressional candidates right now, um, you know, that's something that Democrats are wrestling with. But for the Republicans, that's been going on too. You know, part of the Tea Party wave 
was this more uh, populist um, notion. And that definitely was picked up upon in the 2016 presidential race. Um, and so I think that if that is accurate and if that is the lesson that politicians take is that there is um, this big group of Americans that feel left out, that feel left behind, that are not the economic elite, and that that is an important uh, base to talk to electorally, then that might help encourage more politicians of both parties, but particularly maybe Republicans, to engage on poverty issues in a way that maybe they didn't um, feel the need to or, or didn't think there was an audience for. Maybe now that will change and, and we will see Republicans sponsoring um, more of their own approaches to poverty legislation. Um, you know, I think I think the jury's out for both parties right now. Um, on both sides, there is rhetoric. Um, you know, Speaker Paul Ryan, Republican from Wisconsin in the House, has a blueprint about poverty, and he's often spoken about poverty. Um, but, you know, as we've talked about, we don't see the, the legislative outcomes for that. But there is some sense that there may be greater recognition um, and self-interest in speaking to these issues. I'm Stephen Pinker with the New Books Network. We have been listening to Christina C. Miller, who is the author of Poor Representation, Congress and the Politics of Poverty in the United States, uh, recently out from Cambridge University Press. Chris, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. This has been really fascinating. Thank you. It was really my pleasure. Thanks for having me.